So I would recommend the 1963 film Zatoichi the Fugitive, uh, directed by uh, Tazaro Tanaka and starring Shintaro Katsu. The entire series is available from Criterion, but you can also find the individual films on YouTube. So, uh, Zatoichi the Fugitive, uh, 1963. Let's get back to DK. And that's it for this week. We'll be back next week with more reviews. This is From the Vault, the Pacifica Radio Archives weekly series where we get to profile some of the amazing recordings in our 55,000 program collection going back to 1949. I'm your host, Mark Torres. On this week's From the Vault, we go back to one of Pacifica's recordings from 1992 with a talk by leading intellectual Noam Chomsky called Creeping Fascism. What you find is that in the periods when computers were not marketable, the public paid for them. So during the 1950s, they were basically too big and clumsy to be marketable, so the public paid 100% of the costs through the military system, and that includes NASA later and the Department of Energy. Uh, by the 1960s, they came to be marketable, so public share and costs went down to about 50%. That's what's called free enterprise. It means public subsidy, private profit. That's the way it works. Uh, and so it goes right up until the mid-80s. Mid-80s, this big new expenditures for, you know, new generations of computers and so on and so forth, parallel processing and so on. Public share goes way up. That's a lot of what Star Wars was about, uh, public subsidy for that sector of high technology. And the same is true of every other aspect of high technology. And what's more, the same is true of every other competitive part of the U.S. economy. Uh, if you take a look at the competitive parts, uh, high tech, you know, capital intensive agribusiness or pharmaceuticals or whatever, uh, public's paying the cost, the uh, private industry will get the profit if anything gets marketable. Governments in general are improper agents for policy as compared with corporations. The reason is that this is international. Uh, that's what lies behind what's called pro privatization. The problem is that even though governments typically are run by corporations, that's, they're immune. Corporations are pure fascism. Uh, power comes totally from the top. Flow of power and direction is completely top-down. Nobody's anything to say about it. So therefore, they're proper agents, and what you want is a world based on a kind of corporate mercantilism with as much marginalization of the government as possible, although it's necessary as a funnel for ensuring that the public pay the costs, uh, you know, carry out the bailouts, uh, contribute the armies, and so on and so forth. Remember that in 1992, America was just finishing a cycle of 12 years of Republican leadership in the White House, which ended with George H.W. Bush's Desert Storm military operation that started it all. Now that we have the context, let's hear what this humble Massachusetts Institute of Technology linguistics professor had to say about the growing trend of the consolidation of power and wealth into the hands of the few. This is Professor Noam Chomsky at an event sponsored by Pacifica Station WBAI in New York City in 1992. The announced uh, title, The uh, National Security State and Democracy, begin with, what about democracy? We have to begin by recognizing that, like every term of political discourse, 
the term democracy has two meanings. Uh, there's an actual meaning, and there's the meaning that's used for uh, ideological warfare, what we could call the politically correct meaning in the real sense of that word. According to the uh, dictionary meaning, a society is democratic to the extent that the general public has opportunities to play some meaningful role in formation of policy, public policy, social policy, and that can vary in many dimensions. Uh, according to the uh, uh, meaning of the term that's used for ideological warfare, the PC meaning, a society is democratic to the extent that uh, it is run by uh, elements that are subordinated to the interests of uh, U.S. investors. This is often pretty explicit, actually. So, for example, uh, in uh, November 1989, uh, Honduras had an election which the president, George Bush, uh, lauded as an inspiring example of democracy in our hemisphere. And in fact, it encapsulated exactly what's meant by democracy in the uh, politically correct sense of the word. There, were, there was indeed an election. There were two candidates. Uh, one was a wealthy industrialist. The other was a wealthy landowner. Uh, they had exactly the same policies, or to be more precise, they had no policies. Uh, the reason is that the government is in fact run by the military and the corporations who are under the control of the U.S. government. Uh, the electoral campaign took place, but it was largely um, insults and uh, uh, throwing mud at one another and comedy and so on and so forth, uh, rather like another election that had taken place a year earlier uh, or another one that is taking place right now. This general low level of terror that goes on, it's not like Guatemala and El Salvador, but bad enough, and it escalated right before the election, just in case anybody got the wrong ideas. Uh, union leaders left mutilated by the, and killed in roadsides and that sort of thing. But uh, the level of terror wasn't so high that people here had to pretend to get exercised about it. Uh, it met the conditions of stability, profit flowed, uh, the poverty, which was always uh, horrifying, deepened substantially during the decade of democracy. Uh, in fact, all is well, so that's an inspiring example of democracy in the hemisphere. Uh, another illustration of what democracy means is being given right now uh, in uh, uh, Haiti. And at this time later, we might look at that. The United States has 190 years of experience in suppressing democracy in Haiti. Uh, nothing new is happening, but it's interesting to see the contemporary modalities. Well, there's a theory behind all this. Uh, the theory, in fact, goes back centuries. Uh, the, uh, it, it varies a little bit from element to element among elites. Uh, on the sort of libertarian side, you get people like John Locke, uh, whose position was that the public should not be permitted to discuss public affairs. Uh, on the conservative side, you get people like, say, Ronald Reagan and George Bush, who think that the public shouldn't be allowed to know about public affairs. Uh, so, for example, the, uh, one of the contributions to democracy during the uh, uh, Reagan-Bush years was to uh, introduce such harsh measures for release of declassified documents from 30 years ago uh, that the whole, uh, that the entire uh, body of historians of the State Department, a pretty reactionary lot, uh, resigned in protest since the public was now the public, meaning whoever bothers to go into the archives and look up the records, uh, was being denied access to what happened a generation ago. Well, those are the extremes. Uh, in the modern progressive version, you get a, what is put forth by people called progressive theorists of democracy, people like Walter Lippmann, for example, uh, who hold that the public shouldn't have anything to do with public affairs. Uh, they should be, as he puts it, spectators, not participants. Uh, but they do have a role. The role is that every once in a while they're supposed to be able to lend their weight to one or another member of what he called the responsible men, small group of people who runs things, and they're supposed to be allowed to say, you lead us or you lead us, and then they're supposed to go home. Uh, that's the more progressive side. Uh, as Lippmann explained further, uh, the responsible men, you know, us smart guys, uh, we have to protect ourselves from the trampling and the rage of the bewildered herd. It's the other 90%. In, within that range, you have, in effect, the theory of democracy, and it includes just about everybody. It includes people like Reinhold Niebuhr, uh, like 
Harold Laswell is one of the founders of modern political science on the liberal side and so on. If you really look closely, you find that this is the conception of democracy that's widely held. Uh, and there's also a theory behind that. The theory is that the people are just too stupid. Uh, you have to protect yourself from the stupidity of the average man, as Niebuhr put it. Uh, and therefore, only the responsible men, these tiny elites, are, are allowed to analyze and interpret and understand and figure things out. Now, anybody who proposes this theory, and it's been proposed over hundreds of years, is always part of the class of responsible men. Uh, and one of the questions they don't ask is why. So, for example, when Walter Lippmann writes about how the responsible men, you know, small group, have to run things, uh, he doesn't ask, why am I, Walter Lippmann, one of the responsible men, and why is Eugene Debs in, in jail at the same time? Well, the answer to that question is transparent, so transparent that you have to hide it from yourself and from others. Uh, you're one of the responsible men if you serve the interests of those who have real authentic power, uh, the people who own the country, the people who have the resources, who make the decisions, who determine how things run. If you can serve their interests properly, you can be one of the responsible men. If you're trying to organize the public to fight for their rights, uh, you can be in jail. Uh, and that's a crucial difference uh, and a property that one has to keep from oneself as well as from others. So that's something that's not described in the literature of democratic theory, too important. Uh, and it is hidden deeply. So for example, if you read uh, an old you know, New Dealer who was a major figure throughout modern American history, Adolf Burley, uh, he describes American democracy you know, with great uh, enthusiasm. He says, American democracy is a system in which any American can run a newspaper, get radio time, organize a political party, and otherwise make any reasonable big bid for, support for, for suffrage and, and support uh, of his countrymen. Any American can do those things, and therefore we're all equal. Uh, that's why electoral politics are so responsive to the needs of the public. Uh, the society is democratic in the PC sense because anyone has those rights. Uh, well, instantly that goes along with a lot of uh, mysticism uh, about, about the market. Uh, so for example, you can read in the, uh, say, New York Times, which is a great treasury of marvelous quotes, uh, uh, they, a couple of months ago, actually had an article criticizing the market which is for some of its imperfections, which is kind of audacious. Uh, but the article by a well-known professor of economics uh, opened by lauding the advantages of the market. And the main one is that the market is a system in which each person is rewarded in accordance with that person's service to society. So, for example, if you're a corporate lobbyist, you know, trying to let's say lobbying for tobacco co uh, companies so that not just half a million people can die next year, but maybe a million. Uh, and uh, if, if on the other hand you're saying Mitch Snyder lobbying for the homeless, uh, your relative rewards reflect your service to society. Well, that's like any American being able to own a newspaper and so on and so forth. Now, these are all things you have to hide from yourself and from others, too, too important and in fact too trivial to let people know about. Well, the Founding Fathers were, in fact, a little more honest about this. So their conception was uh, one of the favorite slogans that the country should be, that the, the people who, actually the men who own the country ought to govern it. That's the way it ought to run. And in fact, that's the way it does run. That's the operative definition of democracy. If you do the work for the guys who own the country, you can be one of the responsible men. You're a respectable intellectual, uh, otherwise not. Well, pretty much the same is true of the world. And in fact, sometimes that's put honestly, too. So for example, here's uh, a recent book by the chief historian of the CIA, senior historian of the CIA, a guy named Gerald Haynes, uh, about the post-war world, concentrating on Latin America. Uh, and he starts by saying, here's the opening sentence, following World War II, uh, the United States assumed out of self-interest responsibility for the welfare of the world capitalist system. That's pretty frank. He could have gone on to add uh, CIA reports from the, right at the beginning, like right, one of the earliest CIA reports in 1947 when it was founded, said that the U.S., since declassified, pre-Reagan, uh, said that uh, we must maintain the colonial economic interests of the West throughout the third world. That's a prime concern. 
uh, going on, the senior historian of the CIA uh, says that uh, American leaders tried to reshape the world to fit U.S. needs and standards uh, with free access to markets for surplus uh, American industrial production and private U.S. investment, uh, free exploitation by U.S. corporations of the vast resources of the raw materials of the third world. It should be an open world, open in that sense, open to exploitation by the rich, but not completely open, he points out, even to the rich. Uh, the U.S. desired, he says, a closed hemispheric system. Uh, so we had to drive the British and the French out of Latin America. Uh, same for the Middle East. The Monroe Doctrine was extended to the Middle East right after the Second World War with enormous consequences for Southern Europe and North Africa as well as the Middle East. <coughs> uh, he goes on to say it was necessary, it's ne given in this closed system that we're trying to construct in the Western Hemisphere, it's necessary to block excessive industrial development in countries like Brazil. It's excessive, that means it might compete with U.S. corporations. Uh, competing with Canadian or British or Japanese corporations on contrast was permitted. Uh, in general, he says, the U.S. sought to guide Latin American development for the benefit of U.S. corporations and to impose neo-colonial relationships designed to benefit U.S. corporations and investors as well as the Brazilian government. And he didn't bother to say that the Brazilian government had better be run by local agents of U.S. corporations uh, or else they'll get a lesson in proper behavior from the U.S.-backed generals. Uh, well, that's senior historian for the CIA. Uh, he happens to be focusing on Brazil, which is an extremely rich country with enormous resources. It's been under U.S. control, complete U.S. control, for half a century, as he points out. Uh, he describes Brazil as a testing area in, the, in this half century, a testing area for U.S. scientific methods of development. So, for example, U.S. experts went down there to show them how to run railroads because we're so good at that. Uh, this is, uh, and, and similarly on other things. Uh, and writing in 1989, he says it was a great success. It's a U.S. success story. It's a success of capitalism uh, in dramatic contrast to the failures of communism. Uh, actually, it's a bit of an unfair comparison because there is no part of the so-called communist world that had anything like the advantages or the wealth uh, of Brazil. But even putting that aside, uh, it's an interesting comparison. Uh, and there's something right about what he said uh, this, in this testing area for successful development. There was a great success for, of capitalism for about 5% of the population. Uh, most of the rest lived like Central Africa, uh, dying of starvation and disease. Uh, it's one of the world, maybe the world center of child slavery, uh, of murder of children by uh, police death squads, uh, if not worse, uh, sale of children for organs, apparently. Uh, the, uh, so it is claimed by the Brazilian state. Uh, it's no doubt that that's true of adults. So a great success. Uh, there are many other such uh, successes of capitalism. Uh, and U.S. success stories. Uh, Haiti and the Dominican Republic are interesting cases. The Philippines is an interesting case. There we've been able to run it for a century. Uh, Central America, which we've been running for forever, really. Uh, in fact, wherever U.S. benevolence has extended, uh, you find such a success of capitalism. Uh, somehow, none of this enters into consciousness. Uh, it's like Lippmann and who gets to be one of the responsible men or A.A. Burley and the uh, way every American can uh, run newspapers and set up political parties and therefore participate in the political system. Well, that's democracy. You are listening to a 1992 speech by Professor Noam Chomsky called Creeping Fascism. For a copy of this program, Call us in the archives at 1-800-735-0230. Or to browse our entire collection, go to pacificaradioarchives.org. And now, back to our program, Noam Chomsky, Creeping Fascism from 1992. Uh, let's turn to the national security state. Uh, there's a classic formulation of what the national security state is, and you really ought to read it if you haven't done so. Uh, 
Uh, it's NSC 68, National Security Council document 68, in April 1950, a couple of months before the Korean War, all generally recognized as the sort of founding document of the post-war era, declassified about 20, 18 years ago. Uh, this document was written by Paul Nitze with Dean Acheson looking over his shoulder. Uh, Acheson incidentally knew what he was doing. Uh, he, he elsewhere, privately, he said that it's necessary, in his words, to bludgeon the mind of top government in a manner clearer than truth uh, in order to get through the policies he wanted. He convinced Senator Arthur, Arthur Vandenberg that it's necessary to scare hell out of the country. Uh, but most people aren't supposed to think about that. You're just supposed to believe it. And if you want to be a successful intellectual with a good job and so on, you better believe it. You're not supposed to know what they were up to. Uh, well, if you look at it's interesting to look at. Uh, it has the simple clarity of a fairy tale. Uh, on the one side, there's ultimate evil. You know. On the other side, there is absolute sublimity. Uh, ultimate evil is the Kremlin with its implacable purpose. It says the implacable purpose of the slave state is to subject the entire world to its iron rule. It goes on and on like this. And it's unnecessary in dozens of pages to give any evidence because that's inherent. It's a logical necessity. It grows out of the nature of the slave state. So you don't need any evidence, and none is offered. Then on the other side, you have absolute perfection. That's us. Our fundamental purpose is to safeguard the dignity and the worth of every individual throughout the world, as in this testing area of development in Brazil, for example. Uh, we have many advantages in our conflict with ultimate evil, such as the essential tolerance of our world outlook, our generous and constructive impulses, uh, the absence of any coveted, covetousness in our international relations, on and on, you know, tears well to your eyes as you contemplate this magnificence and so on. Uh, the, uh, it's, kind of ob it's kind of clear why respectable intellectuals never quote any of this stuff. Uh, the reason is that the resemblance between the highly respected uh, patricians uh, dedicated to public service, the resemblance between them and the sort of nuttier elements in the uh, Politburo under Stalin or in the mosques in Combe uh, might become a little too evident. But if you want to see the resemblance, read it. And remember, they're talking to each other. This is not meant for public consumption. Uh, well, given the uh, confrontation between absolute sublimity and ultimate evil, and given its roots in the essential nature of the societies, so therefore evidence is irrelevant, uh, given all that, there are some consequences. And from them, we find out what the national security state is. One consequence, all these are drawn, one consequence is there can be no accommodation. Obviously, there can be no compromise between absolute sublimity and ultimate evil. Uh, uh, so therefore, the, uh, as Acheson put it, neutralism anywhere in the world would be suicidal. Can't accept it. Uh, it's a real war. We've got to win it. We've got to dissolve and disintegrate the enemy. Roll back. We might make a deal with successor states, but nothing else. Second consequence is that we have to enormously increase military spending. In fact, it was quadrupled shortly after under the pretext of the Korean War, which later took place. Why do we have to quadruple uh, military spending? Well, there's various statistics scattered around through the document. Uh, they're scattered around for two reasons. For one thing, they were kind of hoping that none of the State Department bureaucrats would actually add them up and put them together. Uh, the, another reason is they were all faked. But uh, in order to exaggerate the strength of the enemy and our own weakness. But even if we accept it, and you can tell that from internal evidence, incidentally, uh, but even if you accept the figures, it turns out that by their own figures, the United States was spending at that time twice as much as the Soviet Union on arms. Its economic power was four times as great. The Soviet Union was at its outer limits, and the US was just using a fraction of its capacity. Western Europe alone already balanced the Soviet Union, it was growing fast after post-war reconstruction. Uh, but nevertheless, we had to quadruple our, our military expenditures. Now, Nitze and Acheson realized that somebody, some bureaucrat, was going to add, uh, add up the numbers. So they had an answer uh, in case anybody noticed it. They said that the disparity, the enormous disparity that already exists, doesn't mean anything. And the reason is the Russians are so backward that they can, I'm quoting, they can do more with less. 
So in other words, their weakness is their strength, you know, kind of like the ultimate weapon. You can't beat that one. So therefore, even though we're already way outspending them and we have the whole world under our control and we're rebuilding Japan and Germany, their traditional enemies, uh, nevertheless, we have to quadruple military expenditures, uh, there are, which was done. There are also domestic consequences. Uh, one domestic consequence, they said, is we have to have, since we're in a war, we have to have a large measure of sacrifice and discipline we have to overcome the excesses of a permanently open mind and our excess of tolerance. Uh, we have to overcome dissent among us. Uh, we have to understand the need for just suppression. That's a crucial feature of uh, the, what they call the democratic way. Uh, we have to control unions, schools, churches, all means of influencing opinion. In other words, we need totalitarianism to save democracy, uh, which incidentally is another common theme throughout history. Crucially, they said, we need military Keynesian methods to stimulate the economy. Otherwise, we're going to be in economic trouble. Uh, well, that's NSC 68, and that's the national security state. You can recognize its aspects at home and abroad ever since. Uh, in fact, there were two sources of this, uh, domestic and foreign, uh, and it's worth looking at each of them. The domestic source was, you have to look at the timing. This is 1950. In fact, it grew out of thinking in the late 40s. Uh, this is not many years after the Great Depression. The Depression of the 1930s taught everyone a very simple lesson. Capitalism is dead. There is no more, there's no longer anyone who thinks that capitalism is a viable system. Someone might have thought it up until the 1930s, but in the 1930s it was finished. Uh, capitalism is a joke that you use to torture the weak uh, who can be subjected to the depredations of the free market if you can impose it on them but no wealthy society is going to play games with it. In fact, every successful industrialized society from England up to South Korea got that way by violating these rules radically. Uh, and while there were some illusions about how you might play around with them, by the 30s, the illusions were finished. Uh, so that's part of the background. Secondly, uh, it was recognized that the New Deal measures failed. Uh, the New Deal left the country about where it was, a couple of, you know, Band-Aids softened some of the edges, but essentially it was the same. However, something did rescue the United States from the Depression, and in fact the world, and that was the war. Uh, during the war, we had a totalitarian economy, completely totalitarian economy, actually more so than Germany, uh, and it worked. American industrial production almost quadrupled. We got out of the Depression. Uh, that lesson, the lesson of Keynes, if you like, although nobody bothered to read Keynes, uh, the lesson was taught to exactly the people who had to know it, namely the corporate managers who flocked to Washington to run the wartime totalitarian economy, which was very successful. And they learned that if you have powerful state intervention and direction, you can maintain private profit uh, while eliminating, basically eliminating capitalism, eliminating the risk because of uh, public subsidy. Uh, that's the lesson that they learned. Then we get into the post-war period. Uh, there's some pent-up consumption demand. So for a couple of years, things move. But by the late 40s, by 1948, the country's heading right back to recession. If you look back at the time, you'll find that everyone thought we we're going right back to the 30s. Uh, well, what do you do? Well, you apply the lesson you learned. Uh, you have to have powerful state intervention to overcome the complete impossibility of a capitalist society to function. Uh, now the question is how you do it. Well, as any, anyone of you who's taken an economics course knows that they'll tell you, and in fact prove it, you know, that uh, any kind of spending is about the same. So military spending will do it, building schools and hospitals will do it, you know, hiding dollars in the sand will do it, it all comes out about the same. You can prove a theorem. Uh, and in fact, that was discussed in the business community. So you look back at Business Week and so on, and there's discussions about what mechanism we should use. And it's recognized that social spending, you know, hospitals, infrastructure, schools, that kind of business, that would work. Uh, military spending would also work. However, they diff and, and about as well, they assume, maybe worse, but it would work. Uh, the decision was military spending. Why? Very good reasons, reasons that are worth thinking about for when you think about, say, what's called conversion today. The reason was that social spending has defects, serious defects. One reason is it's redistributive. It tends to redistribute income. Uh, second, uh, a second and worse defect is that it, it is democratizing. Uh, it tends to mobilize and organize people. 
So if, you're, if the state is getting involved, say, in building hospitals and schools, people are going to care where they are, and they may get organized and do something about it, and that's the worst imaginable tragedy. You might have an actual, you know, aspects of a functioning democracy. On the other hand, if you're building missiles, nobody has any thoughts about it, so the public can be properly marginalized. Social spending also interferes with managerial prerogatives. If, if the government is involved in doing something useful, that's interfering with the capacity of private industry to make profit. If the government is doing nothing but provide uh, the costs of production, so like research and development, and providing a guaranteed state market for waste production, that's a gift to the corporate manager. Well, that's military production. Uh, so for all these reasons, military production is very advantageous. What they t teach in the economics courses is true, but irrelevant. It doesn't have anything to do with power. Uh, uh, the defects of social spending, the democratizing effect, the redistributive effect, the interference with corporate prerogative and so on, that overwhelms any other concern uh, and even the relative inefficiency of military spending, which you can prove as much as you like, it doesn't matter to anyone, is irrelevant uh, because that's a gift to the corporate manager. Now, it's not weapons, that's marginal. Uh, it's all of high technology industry. So if you take a look, say, at the history of the US computer industry, uh, what you find is that in the periods when computers were not marketable, the public paid for them. So during the 1950s, they were basically too big and clumsy to be marketable, so the public paid 100% of the costs through the military system, and that includes NASA later and the Department of Energy. Uh, by the 1960s, they came to be marketable, so public share and costs went down to about 50%. That's what's called free enterprise. It means public subsidy, private profit. That's the way it works. Uh, and so it goes right up until the mid-80s. Mid-80s, this big new expenditures for, you know, new generations of computers and so on and so forth, parallel processing and so on. Public share goes way up. That's a lot of what Star Wars was about, uh, public subsidy for that sector of high technology. And the same is true of every other aspect of high technology. And what's more, the same is true of every other competitive part of the U.S. economy. Uh, if you take a look at the competitive parts, uh, high-tech, you know, capital-intensive agribusiness or pharmaceuticals or whatever, uh, public's paying the cost, the uh, private industry will get the profit if anything gets marketable. Uh, right now it's happening, you might have read in the papers that the head of the U.S. Genome Project, uh, uh, James Watson, resigned recently. That's about a huge flap that's going on uh, because the government is trying to patent parts of genes. Uh, the reason the government is trying to patent parts of genes is that so that the huge profits that are expected from biotechnology, which is going to include everything from medicine to agriculture, will be in the hands of U.S. commercial corporations. One of the scientists opposing this pointed out, not inaccurately, that if all this stuff works, uh, people are going to have to pay royalties if they decide to have a child. Uh, the, uh, and the idea is that you should be able to monopolize the future totally. I mean, instantly, at the same time, something else is going on. Uh, the pharmaceutical companies, uh, the pesticide companies and so on, are ripping off indigenous cultures to the tune of tens of billions of dollars a year. It's not small. You know, using the millennia of knowledge that has been accumulated uh, to, take their, to take it from them and turn it into things that be can become drugs or, you know, pesticides or whatever. And that's not a small amount. It's estimated as being literally in the tens of billions a year. So on the one hand, you rip off everyone else. Uh, on the other hand, you ensure by state intervention that American private enterprise will control the future, including agriculture, medicine, anything that can come out of biotechnology. Uh, the euphemism for that is capitalism and the free market. Uh, well, uh, people who think about conversion ought to think about this. There's no known alternative. The only known alternative is the kind of government involvement which has the severe defect uh, that it's democratizing and redistributive. Also, governments in general are improper agents for policy as compared with corporations. The reason is that this is international. Uh, that's what lies behind what's called pro privatization. The problem is that even though governments typically are run by corporations, that's, they're immune. Corporations are pure fascism. Uh, power comes totally from the top. Flow of power and direction is completely top-down. Nobody's anything to say about it. 
So therefore, they're proper agents, and what you want is a world based on a kind of corporate mercantilism uh, with, complete, with as much marginalization of the government as possible, although it's necessary as a funnel for ensuring that the public pay the costs, uh, you know, carry out the bailouts, uh, contribute the armies, and so on and so forth. You're listening to a 1992 speech by Professor Noam Chomsky called Creeping Fascism. For a copy of this program, call us in the archives at 1-800-735-0230. Or to browse our entire collection, go to pacificaradioarchives.org. And now, back to our program, Noam Chomsky, Creeping Fascism from 1992. Uh, and that's the international system that's developing. Incidentally, the military Keynesianism that was advocated in NSC 68 was also internationalized. Uh, it was necessary to reconstruct the societies of the rich uh, elsewhere. Uh, and the Marshall Plan was tried and other mechanisms were tried. They didn't really work. The mechanism that worked was international military Keynesianism. So the expenditures of U.S. military production, in particular, first the Korean War and offshore procurement and so on, that gave the shot in the arm that got Japan's economy moving again and also Europe, and the same happened with the, Korean, with the Vietnam War and so on and so forth. That meant a worldwide campaign to destroy the anti-fascist resistance uh, and to reinstate the traditional conservative order, which was very much discredited around the world at the time because of its association with fascism. That means including Nazi collaborators and you know, fascist collaborators and so on. That happened all over the world and was necessary. Uh, uh, with regard to the third world, uh, what was necessary was to ensure exactly what the chief historian of the uh, CIA just said in those remarks uh, that I mentioned. They've got to be open to exploitation. That means that nationalism and independence are flatly unacceptable, and certainly any form of democracy is unacceptable because it will interfere with the overwhelming need uh, for the societies to be open to Western exploitation, ultimately U.S. exploitation and robbery. That's very explicit in the documentary record, incidentally, and you see it playing out before your eye everywhere you look. You look at Haiti, for example, today, you can see it playing out. Uh, uh, the... Uh, uh, l let me say, where does the Cold War fit into this story? Well, in my view, the Cold I've been, without convincing anybody very much, been arguing for years that the Cold War is really part of the North-South conflict. Uh, it's just, it differs in scale, but it's not unlike the U.S. relation to Grenada in character. Uh, and to see that, to see why that's plausible, I think you've got to look at the logic of the North-South conflict, the European conquest of the world, to say it more honestly. Uh, what's called euphemistically the North-South conflict is the technique by which the guys who own the rich countries ensure that the rest of the world is under their control too. That's the North-South conflict. Uh, and it requires a number of things. One, it requires you cannot ha have any nationalism or independence in the third world. That's obviously out. Secondly, it turns out that there's something even worse than nationalism and independence, and that is successful nationalist development. If you have some success in the third world, that's doubly dangerous because that will be what was called by people like Dean Acheson a rotten apple that might spoil the barrel or a virus that might spread and infect the region, as George Kennan put it back in the 40s. Uh, you've got to watch that stuff. Uh, and uh, 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 it, it's quite explicit. Uh, if you have a successful nationalist development, it can threaten what's called stability. Uh, here's a nice definition of it from the State Department internal records uh, at the time that the U.S. was just right after the U.S. overthrew the democratic capitalist government in Guatemala. said so we had to do this because Guatemala had become an increasing threat to the stability of Honduras and El Salvador. Its agrarian reform is a powerful propaganda weapon. Uh, its broad social program of aiding workers and peasants in a victorious struggle against uh, the upper classes and the large foreign enterprises has a strong appeal to the populations of Central American neighbors where similar conditions prevail. Okay, that's what's called a virus, threatens stability. Stability means security of the upper classes and the large foreign enterprises, and that can't be permitted, obviously. 
and so we always have to be in favor of stability, whether it's uh, uh, you know uh, Iraq uh, when we had to support the crushing of the Kurds and the Shiites or whatever. Uh, the Haitian leaders today, when they get rid of this troublesome priest, uh, all of that stuff is supporting stability, particularly if it threatens to work. Uh, the same was true of the, let's take a look at the Soviet Union. Uh, Eastern Europe is the original part of the Third World. It goes back even before the Columbian era, back in the 14th and 15th century. Eastern Europe was already picking up Third World characteristics as a provider of resources and raw materials to the just barely beginning development of Western Europe. By the 19th and 20th centuries, uh, Eastern Europe was deeply impoverished third world. You know, like not every part of it. There's some heterogeneity, but these are broad brushstrokes. It was deeply impoverished third world. What about Russia? Well, Russia was a little bit different because of its scale. It was deeply impoverished, but it was also very powerful. Uh, so Russia was a part of the deep third world that was powerful enough to threaten Western Europe in the 18th and 19th century. It was different from Grenada in that respect. Deep third world, but a huge army. You know. uh, however, by the end of the 19th century, Russia also was standard third world. Sectors were developing, but of course that's true in Brazil too. Uh, and they were owned by the West. You know, they were mostly owned by foreign enterprises. Most of the population was just in total misery. And that remained through and was deepening throughout most of Eastern Europe, in fact, up until 1945. Uh, so you look at Bulgaria in 1939, and half the peasants are using wooden instruments, for example. Well, here's a part of the third world which extricated itself and moved towards independent development. Well, you know, it's, un it's unacceptable if it's a fishing cooperative in Grenada, and it's hugely unacce un unacceptable if it's a sixth of the world. So that's a big problem, not a little problem. Uh, well, Grenada, you can kind of knock over in a weekend. Soviet Union, you know, like maybe take 70 years, but it's basically the same problem. Furthermore, uh, this region was not only moving towards independence, but it was also a virus, and they were scared sick of it. Uh, right into the 1970s, the West was concerned with the successful development of Eastern Europe. Now, in Western propaganda, what you taught every day is you compare Western Europe and Eastern Europe, and you say, boy, look how bad Eastern Europe looks, as it has for the last 700 years or something. On the other hand, if you've got a gray cell in your head, and in particular if you're in the third world, you compare those regions which, regions which were like them 70 years ago. So like you compare Russia and Brazil, or you compare you know, Bulgaria and Guatemala, well, then you get a different picture. And although it's assumed that highly indoctrinated, educated Westerners won't think about this, and they don't. Unfortunately, in the third world, they're not as stupid as we are. And they can think about it, and they look at it, and they can draw the comparisons, and they constantly do it, and planners are worried about it. Uh, and, and therefore, they regarded R Russia as a virus. So for example, there's a major War Department document, major study, recently declassified, came out in July 1945, right towards the end of the Second World War was handed over to the State Department by Henry Stimson, and it's kind of like the basis for a lot of wartime post-war planning, and says we, we got a problem. The problem is what they called, um, let's see if I can find it, the problem is the rising tide all over the world uh, wherein the common man aspires to higher and wider horizons. Now that's a big problem. Uh, the uh, uh, now, uh, uh, it's a problem in Europe, Japan, you know, uh, all over the third world and so on. Now, what about the Russians? Well, they said there's no proof yet that the Russians have flirted with the thought of associating themselves with this rising tide of aspirations, but they might. Now, we can't take any chances, because if they do, it says they have a strong drawing card, not only their own development, but they have a strong drawing card in the, in the proletarian philosophy of communism and we have nothing so dynamic and alluring to offer in response. So we can't take any chances and we better crush them right away. They might flirt with the thought of associating with this rising tide. As John Foster Dulles and Dwight Eisenhower put it a decade later, uh, the communists have an advantage over us. They can appeal to the masses and get control of mass movements, something that we have no capacity to duplicate. I'm quoting from secret internal records. They can appeal to the poor who have always wanted to plunder the rich, 
That's the main problem of the modern world. That's quoting Dulles. Uh, and they have an unfair advantage because we can't appeal to anybody with our idea that the rich ought to plunder the poor. That doesn't sell for some reason. Uh, incidentally, Stalin's crimes, which were well known, were of absolutely no concern. Like you read Truman's diaries and so on. He says, I can get along with Stalin fine. I don't care what he does internally. Uh, the in fact, if he were to die, it would be a disaster. The only condition is we have to get our way 85% of the time. And the problem is they weren't sure they could do that, so therefore it was a big problem. Uh, so on the one hand, you have this independent region for another, uh, uh, right, this goes right into the 80s, like the World Bank in a recent statement described the, com 1988, described the communist societies as a reasonably successful example of development outside of the global market dominated by the West. And by third world standards, it was more than reasonably successful, and that's exactly what they were afraid of. The crimes were of no account. Any more than Saddam Hussein's crimes bothered anybody. It was the successes and the virus effect that was the problem. And that runs right up till today. Notice it's typical logic of the North-South conflict. Uh, furthermore, they were even worse because they were, so, uh, here their scale comes into, uh, you know, like Grenada couldn't protect other countries from U.S. assault, but the Russians could. They had a deterrent effect. They could limit the use of force by the U.S. So they're an impossible danger. Therefore, we clearly have to get rid of them. Uh, and that's another thing that lies behind the conflict. Well, so it goes up until today. Uh, if you look at the post-war period, post-Cold War period, say, you know, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, take a look at the events that followed. You'll see nothing changed. Nothing changed. Everything goes on exactly the way it did before. Uh, or to be more precise, the pretexts have changed. So when we overthrew the, when we invaded Panama, it's kind of, you know, such like a footnote to history. You know, doesn't even, you don't even notice it. Happens all the time. But it was different in two respects. One, you needed new pretexts. Uh, the Berlin Wall had just fallen. You know, even the most mad lunatic couldn't say we're defending ourselves from the Russians. Uh, so we were defending ourselves from the arch maniac Noriega and his hordes of narco traffickers. You need new pretexts. Uh, another point was made intelligently by Elliot Abrams, who's, you know, head of Latin American stuff for the Reagan administration. He pointed out this is the first time in 70 years uh, that the United States, said 50 years, that the United States has been able to intervene in another country without any concern that there'd be a Russian reaction somewhere. There isn't any deterrent, in other words. Uh, and that's important. Uh, so those are changes, but other than that, everything goes on the same. You want to have a look at it, I'll end by just taking uh, Libya, front pages. Very interesting story. It tells you exactly how things work. Uh, and look, look what's happening. Uh, the United States regularly needs some way to frighten the population. You just have to have it. You know, you have policies that are attacking the general population. You've got to keep them in fear. Libya, it's been a punching bag throughout the last decade. Totally defenseless. You know, you can beat it up anytime you feel like. Uh, a lot of anti-Arab racism, so nobody's going to object. Nobody likes Gaddafi. It's absolutely perfect. You can always pull it out of your pocket. Uh, well, you know, they need something now. Uh, the Egyptian press uh, is perfectly aware of this. The recent issue of Al-Ahram, the more or less government press, said, look, Bush, if you want uh, an election ploy, do something else. Don't bomb Libya. Uh, they understand exactly what's going on. In fact, they went on to define the Bush's new world order as codified international piracy pretty accurate. Uh, so what, what's Libya? Well, you know, uh, current claim is that, uh, the current fuss is that Libya has to extradite two citizens to Britain and the United States uh, for trial because they allegedly took part in the Lockerbie bombing. And there's a few comments that would be made if we had newspapers in the country, which of course we don't, but if you had them, here's some questions that they might ask. Question one, is this the only case of extradition of criminals that's up for discussion? Well, no. So for example, uh, this started in November. On November 23rd, uh, a French secret agent was arrested in Switzerland uh, on an international arrest warrant from New Zealand. Uh, he's one of the guys who was involved, he actually admitted having been involved in blowing up the Rainbow Warrior in a, a New Zealand uh, harbor, killing a photojournalist, blowing up a Greenpeace ship. Well, at the time, France put enough pressure on New Zealand, you know, threatened to stop importing their mutton and all that kind of junk, so that New Zealand backed off and didn't do anything about it. Uh, but now this French secret service, although they did do something, uh, the French government gave the Legion of Honor Award 
to the commanding officer who was in charge of the attempt to blow up the Rainbow Warrior, although they were sorry it didn't quite work the way they wanted. Uh, so they did do something. But New Zealand was prevented from responding. Okay, in November, however, they kept international arrest warrants for some of the French terrorists involved. In November, one of them was picked up in Switzerland. France immediately pressured New Zealand to drop the arrest effort. They're not going to allow Switzerland to extradite a French terrorist uh, to New Zealand for trial for, a, for an admitted terrorist act. That's right in, you know, you can tell me how much you've read about that one. Uh, the same month, November, uh, Costa Rica, who's supposed to be an ally, uh, renewed its request to the United States, long-standing request, that the U.S. extradite to Costa Rica a U.S. terrorist, a man named John Hull, who most of you know about, who was indicted in Costa Rica for premeditated murder, uh, uh, setting up the La Penca bombing in which six people were killed, uh, drug running, uh, participation in international terrorism, you know, the U.S. war against Nicaragua and so on. Of course, the U.S. doesn't, e the US doesn't even bother responding to those requests, uh, and the, uh, uh, the press, of course, doesn't mention it. Well, there's a couple of other cases of extradition that might be discussed. What about aircraft? What about blowing up aircraft? Well, you know, whoever blew up the Lockerbie, bomb, the Lockerbie plane, uh, it's not the only air tragedy. There are worse ones. So, for example, there's the worst air tragedy of the decade not very far from Lockerbie, uh, an Air India flight, which was blown up in 1985 over the Irish Sea with 329 people killed. Uh, nobody's pursuing that one. Like, you don't have 14,000 agents running around looking for evidence. Why is that? Well, the answer is that there, it's known who blew it up. It was blown up by Sikh terrorists who were trained in a paramilitary training camp in Alabama, uh, run by a guy named Frank Camper, where they train uh, they train mercenaries for U.S.-run terrorist operations around the world. Now, that was never investigated, so we can't be absolutely certain because nobody's going to look at that one, except Leslie Coburn, incidentally, who did, relative of the, mod the moderator, but uh, the, uh, uh, and who discovered this. Uh, it was conceded, however, by the U.S. government. It was kind of tacitly conceded. So nine months after this, uh, Edwin Meese, attorney general, went to India on another trip, and while he was in India, if you look closely, you'll notice he made some comments telling the government of India, well, don't worry, we're going to close down this camp, it won't happen again. Uh, okay, well, we don't go after the people who were responsible for that bombing. Uh, or let's go back to Lockerbie. Uh, every, whoever blew up the Pan Am flight, it's admitted, I mean, it's agreed by everybody, it was a retaliation. It was a retaliation for the shooting down of a, an Iranian commercial airliner uh, with more people killed than in the Pan Am flight. This was part of the U it was shot down by the USS Vincennes uh, as part of the effort to support Saddam Hussein in the last stages of the war against Iran, and it worked. In fact, Iran capitulated after that. Uh, well, what about that one? That's occasionally mentioned in the press because you can't just totally disregard it since this was a retaliation. Every reference I've seen to it calls it an accidental shooting down of a plane, just as it was described at the time. But that's certainly not everybody's picture of the story. For example, it's not the picture of a U.S. naval commander, David Carlson, who was commanding a nearby vessel right near the Vincennes and who wrote an article in nothing other than the U.S. Naval Institute Proceedings, uh, the official journal of the Naval Academy, in which he describes what happened. Uh, he said, we wondered aloud in disbelief as we watched the Vincennes uh, focus its anti-aircraft missiles uh, on what was obviously a commercial airliner coming out of commercial airspace and shoot it down, apparently with the intention of trying out its new high-tech Aegis system. Okay, that's the U.S. Naval Institute proceedings, commander of a nearby... Uh, actually, he actually had a column about this in the L.A. Times, but nobody was interested, nobody cared. Uh, well, it's not true that nobody cared. George Bush cared. Uh, he gave the Legion of Merit Award to the commander of the Vincennes and to the deck officer in charge of uh, anti-air warfare for the cool and professional atmosphere under his command uh, during the time when the uh, airplane was shot down. Well, haven't been reading much about that one. Uh, and we could proceed, but you know, that's the new world order. Uh, the Egyptian press is exactly right. It's just codified international piracy, going on pretty much the way it was before, uh, new pretexts, new moves towards kind of corporate mercantilism, government of the world by the rich, uh, uh, marginalization of the public at home and abroad as much as possible, 
and uh, uh, he can see the directions, and the only thing that's going to stop it is very uh, serious and committed uh, popular action and organization. Now, plenty of that's been going on. It's been going on for years uh, while the system itself becomes, you can call it creeping fascism if you like. Uh, there is another direction in which growing parts of the public have been involved, and I think there has been something like a real cultural revolution in the country. It's radically different from the way it was 30 years ago. Uh, these two tendencies are going on in parallel, and which one dominates will determine whether there's any future to even talk about. Yeah. 
that's it for this edition of From the Vault. You've been listening to the 1992 speech by Professor Noam Chomsky called Creeping Fascism at an event sponsored by Pacifica Station, WBAI, in New York City. To get a copy of this program or to browse our entire 55,000 tape collection, go to pacificaradioarchives.org or call us in the archives at 818-506-1077. I'm Mark Torres. Thank you for helping keep our history alive. Listening to KBOO Portland at 90.7 FM and streaming on the web, KBOO.FM. I'm Don Jacobson, and moving on, we'll be here in just a few minutes right after the news.